Welcome back to the MBEF In The Know podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Padnos. Today, I sit down with Cindy Muchnick, co-author of The Parent Compass, Navigating Your Teen's Wellness and Academic Journey in Today's Competitive World. Some of you may have heard Cindy through the speaker series hosted by MBEF. She shared so much great information I knew we had to have her on the podcast. I immediately benefited from her practical tips for best working with and living with tweens and teens. I wanted to give our community another chance to learn from her, so here she is today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Cindy. It's so nice to meet you. Hi. Thank you for having me. How fun. Thank you so much for joining us on our MBEF in the Know podcast. And thank you for coming and speaking to us over Zoom a couple weeks ago. I loved your talk so much. I thought we could maybe get your messaging out to more people by having you on the podcast. So thank you again. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And I want to start by just giving you a huge compliment because I read your book. I was in the middle of reading Adam Grant's book, Think Again, which was one of the best books I had read in years. And I wanted to prepare for this by reading the book. And it was so hard for me to put down that think again, but I picked up your book and it was just as good. So I couldn't believe it. I was <gasps> like, I can't believe I went from wow. one amazing book to another. So Ellen, congratulations. If you, use, if you use Adam Grant and the parent compass in the same sentence, I may just faint. I'm so honored. <laughs> and we're so honored that you think, you think our book has great content that makes us feel great. And we love Adam Grant and his messages too. So thank yeah. you for, for the lovely compliment. That's very sincere. You're, and you're welcome. I think there's so much in your book. The reason it jumped out, so much jumped out at me is because it's so personable. Um, it's so actionable. Like the stories that you tell, the list that you give us, we can, I went, I would read things and then as soon as my kids would wake up, I would just get started on them. So I have a bunch of questions for you. But before we get started, I would just love to hear a little bit about who you are, where you live, what you do. So I'm Cindy Muchnick. I'm one of the co-authors of The Parent Compass. The subtitle of the book is Navigating Your Teen's Wellness and Academic Journey in Today's Competitive World. I wrote the book with a colleague and now really good friend, Jen Curtis. And The two of us um, had spent our careers as educational consultants, which were basically private college counselors working with students and families on the high school journey and even the middle school journey and culminating in the college admissions process. And my background really came in admissions. So my first career out of college was working in an admissions office in the Midwest, screening applications, interviewing students, visiting schools, doing college fairs, all of that. And so I really glimpsed into life on the other side um, of the process. And so for about 15 years, I had a private practice in Southern California. And then about three years ago, I moved up to the Bay Area. And I'm also the mother of four kids. I have a, a son who's graduated college, who is now a teacher in Boston. I have a son who's in college. And then I have a son and a daughter, both in high school. So I have really been in the thick of not just working with teens my entire life or my entire career, but also uh, raising them. And so the book really allowed me the opportunity to put on my parent hat, to put on my college counselor hat, and to turn to thought leaders and experts and the data and psychologists and fellow authors to support the concept of the parent compass and what it is that Jen and I were trying to share with parents going through this adolescent journey. Great. Wow. What a perfect background you have. I and mean, it makes sense that all the information came through so well 
and was so relatable because you with all of your experience, you were born to write this book. So <laughs> thank you. No, That's thank very you. sweet. Thank you. Yeah, it was definitely giving birth to a labor of love <laughs> in hopes of helping teens and helping parents in these really, you know, sensitive and uncertain and certainly competitive years. Definitely. Definitely. I don't know about other parents, but I definitely need help in these teen years. They're a fun challenge. You said something really fun when you talked to MBEF. You said something like your favorite years are the tween and teen years. And it changed my paradigm a bit. I was like, why do we look at them as negative when they really are these incredible times where kids start directing their lives? Yeah, it's so funny because I remember when my kids were little and our pediatrician did not have children himself. And I thought, how can you be a pediatrician and not be a parent yet? You're young and out of medical school. And then as my relationship grew with the pediatrician and he had kids of his own, obviously it changes. And because I started working with teens so far before having them of my, having my own, it really, you know, got me to appreciate and understand. I was, a, I think, I hope I'm a better parent of teens than I was when they were toddlers and tiny people, because this was just, I do think this is such a wonderful time period of growth. And these are these young adults that are emerging and their brains are growing and they have thoughts of their own and they want to challenge you and debate you. And they're not purposely trying to make your life difficult. They're really not. And I was fortunate to be able to work with teens who were really you know, grateful for help in the journey and the process. But it got me to really appreciate this life stage so much more. And so when I had them on my own, I would say, I made a lot of mistakes too. And we, I talk about them in the parent compass, Jen and I both share that we are not perfect parents. We are still works in progress. I think we will always be. And I just read an interesting book myself about raising nice kids. And the very last pages, the epilogue said, one of the hardest things to do is after you read one of these books is to then put it into practice. And so when you said just at the beginning of the interview today that these are actionable items, we've heard that from a lot of our readers. You can read the Parent Compass in a weekend and that Monday you can start practicing. And some things work and some things don't, but it's they're very doable if you're brave and willing. <laughs> I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Even the fact that you give us discussion topics of things to bring up at dinner, because I think we all default to, how was your day? How was your yep, English test? Yep. <laughs> but you give us these amazing lists of other ways. And I've been doing them. I've been like, what's something really funny that happened today? And talk about a way to get your kids talking. That's a great question. Good job, Ellen. So, well, you're, following your, you're following your parent compass already. I am. Okay, great. That leads me to, I think this is my first question. You refer throughout the book to your parent compass. Can you please talk to me? Tell me what my parent compass is. Yes. So it's interesting. When we originally wrote the book, Jen and I were writing really an etiquette guide. Uh, we were writing a book to teach parents how to behave and how to behave better. Because in the wake of the Varsity Blues scandal, which was in early 2019, also known as the college admissions scandal, uh, parents behaved in ways that were breaking the law. And we just decided that we were seeing not directly, but a lot of kind of indirect hints of some of this more extreme behavior, even in our practices, not law breaking, but just parents who were really overstepping and really taking over their teens' lives in ways that we felt were really inappropriate. And we would see the direct reflection of that behavior in the way the teens behaved. And then we saw parents who were doing things really 
wonderfully and seemed to be doing things right. And that sort of reflected itself also directly into the way that the teens behaved when working with us or out in the world. And so a parent compass became this term that we coined really as a way to check yourself, to hold yourself accountable for your parenting behavior. And our goal in writing the book was to help parents understand their appropriate role in navigating the tween and teen years in these hyper-competitive times and in these uncertain times. And the book and, and in our social media posts, we offer, as you mentioned, these practical tools to help parents adopt better parenting behavior so that their kids can develop these important skills, which we know are skills like self-reliance, self-advocacy, grit, intention, resilience, purpose, being willing to embrace failure. These big terms that we hear from psychologists and thought leaders on what are important skills that our kids need to have before they leave the nest. And so we hope that by parents using their parent compass, you can have a guide, these guideposts, but you can also preserve that relationship that's so important to have with your teen. Because we heard from another podcaster, psychologist, parenting expert, this quote that we really love now to talk about, which is the only thing that you have left when your kids go out the door, either daily or once they really go out the door and leave for college or the real world or whatever they're doing after high school is your relationship. And so how do you preserve that? And so the parent compass is very sensitive to helping find ways to preserve that while following this parent compass. Wow. I love that quote. (laughs) It's so true. And I think as when you have kids in high school, you realize they're leaving soon. And it's true. The only thing you have is your relationship. Wow. I love that. Another thing that I loved that you said was that you saw teens being a direct reflection of their parents for the positive and the negative. And I think that's really confronting as a parent because maybe we tend to blame our kids on things when maybe we should be looking in the mirror a little bit more. In fact, the very first chapter, the first and second chapter of the book asks the parents the hardest question, which is you have to self-examine and look back on your own life and your own biases and your own academic background and your own upbringing and your own parenting style, really. And first, really fix yourself before you can parent well. So for us to project all of these things onto our kids and things that we want to live vicariously through them, or we want to manage and micromanage and fix and all these things that they tell us are not the right ways to do it. It's just important that we stay on that path on the right side. And and for in order to do that, the first thing we have to do is really look in the mirror, like you said, and ask ourselves that some of those hard questions. So we created this parent questionnaire at the beginning of the book, and then a teen version of the questionnaire to help start that dialogue. The book is written exclusively for parents, but there's one part early on. And I just had someone who was listening to our audiobook say, I just heard the question list, but I have an audiobook. Can you send me a graphic of those two question lists? And so if anyone wants that who's listening and you're listening to the audible of the book, just email us through our website and, and we'll get you that question list. But it's in the book and it does really help you focus on what are you bringing to the table that's not so helpful in the way that you're parenting. And we're only as smart as parents as our oldest child, right? We've only been through things each day new with our oldest, but then we have another and another, and we still don't have all the tools we need because those kids have different 
personalities and behaviors and birth order and gender and, you know, all these different things. So it's a constant, I mean, parenting is just the hardest and most rewarding job in the world, isn't it? And it never ends. It's 24 seven, even when they're not in your house anymore, even when they're cross country, there's, there's always that phone call and that feeling that you want to still be there for them and you want to like them and you want them to like you when they're grownups too. Yeah. Absolutely. I always think about how lucky we are to live in this time when we have access to so much information to try to be better. Like we have access to your book. There's so many wonderful podcasts and books to teach us how to be our best selves for our kids so that they can live their best lives. Yeah, there's a lot of content out there. That's for sure. (laughs) And I think the Parent Compass does take it through a really a little bit of a different lens than so many others, because I don't think, Jenna, I don't think there's books right now written by college counselors who have been in there with these kids and watched them as you're going through this journey and you're not in their school and you're not in their home, but they're coming to you. And a lot comes out. Jen has a mental health background, so she's very well-practiced in therapy and training, but becoming a college counselor, you aren't necessarily trained in psychology. And so it was just a very interesting to, to hear these kids' stories. They share a lot with you in the privacy of your, your office or through your private Zooms. And, and you learn a lot about their parents in the process. And, and then we would observe that when the parents would attend occasional meetings. And so we just really tried to use a lot of case studies in the book based on what we were seeing with boots on the ground in our offices. And then what we were also learning about what was happening on school campuses through teachers we interviewed, through school counselors we interviewed, through heads of school that we interviewed. It was really interesting. We did a lot of surveying of of people in the school systems who would share information too. And it was just shocking and surprising how parents really cross inappropriate lines pretty often if they don't check themselves. (laughs) One of the things that I found most interesting to your point of parents crossing lines is what we think we do versus what we actually do. So for example, you write an incredible list of you're a helicopter parent when, and I was ready to pat myself on the shoulder and be like, oh good, I know I'm not a helicopter parent. And then I get to, if you wake your child up in the morning and I realized not only do I wake him up, I am standing in his bedroom with his lunch, a lunch packed, a water bottle packed. I'm packing his backpack, dragging him out of bed, holding his shoes. I'm like, oh my God, I might be a snowplow parent here. So, (laughs) you know, it, it forced me to look in the mirror. How do, and this is to get actionable. If other people have parents who can't get their kids out of bed, do you have any ideas for how we can do this without, because I, th- I feel like if I didn't drag him out of bed, he would not go to school in the morning. So yeah, I'm definitely, everything else I was pretty good on, but that one, does that make me a helicopter <laughs> parent or do we all have things where our kids need a little more help? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good one. So first of all, bravo Ellen for looking in the mirror and being willing to identify in a way that, oh, wait, I'm doing some of those things that This book is telling me I probably shouldn't be doing. And studies are telling us that kids are going to college and their parents are not cutting that umbilical cord. They are still waking them through texting and calling and let your kid's roommate wake them up maybe, or let your kids be late for class in college because how long does this go on if we start, if we don't finish doing these things now and we don't equip our kids? So what is the worst that's going to happen if your kid oversleeps at school? Well, they're going to miss their first period. They're going to get a tardy. They're going to have to make up the work. And they're going to have to be accountable. And so that's hard, right? Because we're letting our kids 
make a mistake. It's going to, we feel like it's going to go on their record, this and that. This is like a drop in the ocean of life, but it's so important that they make that mistake and that we let them make that mistake so that they can self-correct without us hovering. So even me, myself this morning, I got into a you know, disagreement with my daughter because I was running to the place to grab a bagel and cream cheese and I, we couldn't find the shoes and we couldn't. And I thought, what are we doing? My daughter's 15. She can lay out the shoes the night before. She can check that the lunch is in the fridge. She can you know, gather her things instead of having it be that morning frantic craziness. So even me, the author of The Parent Compass, is struggling with some of those same things, Ellen. And what I would say is, when you read the parent compass and when you practice this not helicoptering, it requires you to be brave. It requires you to show restraint. And it's really only hard the first time. It's really hard the first time to go, you know what? His door is closed and the light is off. What's going to happen if I don't wake him up? What's going to happen if I don't run the paper to school? What's going to happen if I don't bring the lunch or I didn't make the lunch? Are they going to starve? Are they going to get a zero? Are they going to, guess what? Next time, it's not going to happen because you allowed the mistake to happen. And if you read Jessica Leahy's brilliant New York Times bestselling novel, The Gift of, or book, The Gift of Failure, it's all in there. It's all in there. That really grows that idea to the history of how we've come to be these helicopter parents and why it's so bad. And there's a lot of data in there that will tell us that over and over again. And so- I guess what I would say is um, you are no different than most parents struggling with this same issue. And I think if without me counseling you like a therapist, (laughs) but I think if you let the mistake happen, they will recover from it and they will feel the sting. And then then can you just get her? That is so great. And I think what you said was exactly what I needed to hear. Please excuse my dog barking. Um, That, it is a drop in the ocean because I think of it as such a big deal. Great. Thank you. Okay. One other super actionable thing that I don't have this problem yet, but a lot of my friends do (laughs) is the social media, like social media pull these poor kids who are already playing sports and have so much homework and do, you know, have these really big lives get pulled into social media as a parent, how do you recommend we help our kids moderate it? Oh, gosh. Ellen, that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Social media, the, the chapter that we wrote on technology in the book was by far our hardest chapter to write. Jen and I struggled. In fact, at times we were like, can we just not put this chapter in the book because it's so hard to write? And they're full books written just on the technology that are coming out all the time and that are being updated with what's new and with the new you know, science behind everything. But what I can tell you that we did in the Parent Compass is we learned a lot from the experts on this because at home, even, even as a parent, I make these technology social media mistakes. So I guess the first thing would be to say, model good tech behavior in your home as a parent. That's pretty hard to do when you're on your device and on your Zoom. And I guess, thank goodness for social media during all of COVID because what a wonderful time, not that COVID was a joy at all and we're still recovering from it now, but 
the point was it allowed for connection in a way that had we not had it, imagine a generation ago, we're on your landline or you're meeting a kid outside somewhere to get together. And social media kept us together through this and allowed us to Zoom and to build relationships. And I believe that they're pretty real, meaningful relationships. I sort of, my kids laugh at me because I have these Instagram friends now that I've met that are fellow authors and fellow bookstagrammers and other people that I've met along this journey. And we've all been in the privacy of our own homes connecting through social media. So I believe in it as a positive tool. But then you turn on the movie Social Dilemma or you look at kids who are tech addicts or you worry that your kids are just vampires and they're not sleeping because they're on devices all night. And you think, oh gosh, we've got to straddle that line. How do we find the safety net there? So in our tech chapter, I think some of the most helpful tips that I would probably throw out there, and some of them are really intuitive, take the devices away at a certain hour, but not just the phones, the watch, the computer, the iPad, those are always to connect. So if you feel like you have your kid's cell phone in the kitchen, they have three or four other ways to connect in their rooms if you haven't pulled the rest of the technology So once it's lights out, pulling the technology, if if your kids have trouble with discipline in there, is key. Having a lot of open conversations about technology. Some families make a tech contract and then they revisit it because it's really like an organic living document. Things change as your kids change. But having some kind of family house rules about is tech allowed at the dinner table or not? Is tech allowed in the car rides, for example? What happened to those car rides where we used to have conversations with our kids? Nobody's looking out the window and nobody's talking to their parents because they're plugged in. So we recommend you unplug in the car, leave their phones turned off when there's those opportunities for, for conversations. Same with at the dinner table, same with maybe in the kitchen. And then use the tech obviously also as a reward system if you need to, if your kids need some kind of motivator that in the olden days when we had an Xbox and my kids were little, we used to tell them if they wanted to play for 20 minutes on the Xbox, they also had to play for 20 minutes outside because we were worried they would be on the device for a long time. And it was almost like a banking system that we had that seemed to work when they were younger. But tech leaders, I live in the Silicon Valley and tech leaders are not giving their kids to, that's telling you something about the dangers of it. And again, pop in the Social Dilemma movie and it's really a horror movie. It's pretty scary. We love this woman, Tiffany Schlain, um, who's written a book called 24-6. And her book talks about unplugging 24 hours a week from Friday night to Saturday night. And her family has done that for the last 10 years. And she talks about how liberating it is. I think parents have to worry about what they post and and seek permission from their kids before they post and encourage those talks about safety and etiquette with their own kids. I talked to my son about, he has to make sure the content of his texts could be read by parents, his teachers, and not be concerning that there shouldn't be anything ever typed or any photo ever sent, because that's like your tattoo. It never goes away. It's your digital footprint. So we have those talks a lot. I I do a lot of scary talks too, where I almost make up things that I read. I hope my kids aren't listening to this, but I make up things about kids that got kicked out for this or kids that got in trouble for that. Because I feel like when they hear stories of others, it thinks, oh, thank goodness that wasn't me. And maybe they can learn from things that, (laughs) that are happening with people in their peer generation. So those are some ideas, but there is a whole chapter dedicated to it and it goes through it a little more directly. Great. I think some of those horror stories that you talk about are real because I know two 
real cases of kids. They're college dreams. And we know how hard these high school kids are working. And then it's just heartbreak and and a wake up call to our kids for sure. So thanks for that answer. And I hope that it helps some people out there because it's it really is hard. One of my friends, her daughter loves to go to work because when she goes to work, she has to put her phone away. And I feel so bad for this kid that like, that's the only time that she can be offline because, you know, they have these social lives that I don't even fully understand where they have to be connected all the time. Yeah, it's a tough time to be a kid for sure. To move on to one of my favorite take, I have a lot of favorite takeaways from your book, but (laughs) one of my favorites is the idea of really listening to your child. And I think you use the words, let the child chart the course of their life. You say, see the child you have, not the child you inauthentically create. And I think we all do this kind of because we're forced to, right? If your kid likes golf and not soccer, they're going to play golf. So I think we do this to some degree. How do we all get better at it? Yeah. So I think it's becoming a better listener. First of all, as you can tell, I'm a really good talker. That's never been a problem for me. In fact, I used to wear, I used to bring a t-shirt to presentations that I gave and the t-shirt read, I got an A plus in talking. (laughs) And that's who I was as a kid. That's who I am as an adult. I like to engage. I like to share. I like to chat with people, learn from people. But what I've learned as I've grown, not only from being a parent, but from being a friend and from getting mature, and I think we all know this, is how important it is to listen. And you could go to a cocktail party or be at the sidelines of a sports event or be at any adult function and know that if you ask a lot of questions and listen to the people around you, even if you don't witness or share any information about yourself, they think you're terrific because you've allowed them to talk about themselves. Even if they don't know anything about you, they just think you're a great person because you took the time to listen and, and ask questions. And it really is a skill and it's an, it's a practice to learn to do. And if Jen, my co-author on here, she would talk about it also from a therapeutic standpoint, she's you know learned it in training. And there's a wonderful book that you guys probably know, Kelly Corrigan, who's one of our favorite authors, wrote this book called Tell Me More. And it's about the 12 phrases that you should say in your life to have meaning. And the title of the book, Tell Me More, is one of the chapters. But using the words tell me more comes straight out of therapy, which really is in the training of psychologists of the idea of just if you just listen to your kids and you they're telling you something and you say, tell me more, and you reflect back what they're telling you, you parrot it back or you paraphrase it and you ask another follow-up question and you just nod and listen and say, tell me more and zip your lip, you will become a better listener and you will really focus on not just hearing the words, but listening to what they're saying. And then that helps you with the lead up question, but it is a practice. And I think it does take time if you're not a natural listener and you're more of a natural talker, hopefully gotten better at that for my kids. I'm not always great at that and better at that for my friends. Sometimes weirdly, I'm better, a better listener to my friends than I am to my own kids, which is also strange because we should be treating those in our home and under our roof and in our family better than anyone else. But at the same time, we sometimes make the most mistakes because they see us at our most fragile or when we're just, we have all our guards down. So I sometimes tell my kids if they, they don't speak to me in a way I'd like to be spoken to, I say, is that to speak to your teacher or your coach or your, an adult in your life other than me? 
And it just is a reminder, the same thing for us as parents, when we, you know, talk to our kids in a way that's probably not appropriate to say, is that how I would say that in public? If I had other people around, let me try to rephrase that. So listening is a skill. And in the book, again, we talk in a chapter about how important it is to listen and how important it is to ask good, good open-ended questions. And we provide a couple of question lists as well. We to become better questioners. Great. Yeah. I told you already, I love that list. And I love how you say our job is to listen, not to fix. And I also want to thank you because Hillary asked you the question the night that you um, spoke to our community. She asked you and you talked about tell me more. And I think it was like from six to eight, I came upstairs and I started to talk and then I was like, tell me more. So that tell me more, just that simple phrase yeah, it it can really open up doors for you. So I love isn't it, that. Isn't it crazy how yeah. easy that is? It, and it, just it, nodding yeah. and saying, "Tell me more." It's crazy. And mm-hmm. and if your kids don't know that you're used employing that, <laughs> they might think you're right. weird sometimes. But but, but I, it does work. It's such our natural tendency because we love our kids so much to try to guide them and learn from our mistakes and all that kind of stuff. But we know that really doesn't work. They have to figure this out for themselves and. Right talking really is how they can talk it out and maybe make those mistakes through their talking, Uh, not just through listening to what we know. Yeah. I would probably add to um, Ellen that it's just important to find the right moment as well to be sensitive to when to have these conversations because kids, you know, come home from school now, I think more exhausted than they were before COVID, but I think that they also need a little time to decompress before you pepper them with questions or you find the moment when they're just having a snack and scrolling through their phone and you maybe can get them to put the phone down for a minute and and use that time when they're just eating and having a snack. I think food is a big joiner (laughs) and can find the right moment to ask those questions or in the car ride when, you know, it's just quiet. Or even late at night in those times when we used to read our kids' bedtime stories, sometimes just going in and saying goodnight at that time, you get a little unload that helps them release some of what they've been holding on to in the day. And and you can gather and collect some more information. And it's just a safe time when the lights are off to share as well. So you just have to find your moment with each of your kids. Three of my four kids are, are big communicators. They share a lot. And then one of them is really tricky for me. And answer for my husband. And we're constantly trying to find ways to get more than the one word answer or more than the um, grunt or eye roll or whatever. (laughs) So it is, it's hard. You have to try to figure out what works for each of your kids as well. It's always a puzzle. Great. I love that. And that's a great addition about the timing. I, I couldn't agree with that more. You have talking about listening and in that same vein, you have a whole chapter called Praise the Journey, Not the Destination. And it's so funny. I just read a quote yesterday that reminded me of this chapter in your book. I loved this. This was from the psychologist who made flow state a popular term. And I've been thinking about this, but it's the mountaineer does not climb in order to reach the top of the mountain, but tries to reach reach the summit in order to climb. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important to praise the journey and not the destination? Yeah, yeah, that's and that's a really good question. And we do have a chapter dedicated to that. So when we praise the journey, we're facilitating grit. And grit is, you know, one of those terms we hear a lot about where we watch, we're watching our kids fail and we're helping them to troubleshoot. And that's hard. That's really painful and hard to do to watch them fail. But when we do this, they learn resilience and grit, which are these big buzzwords. 
And Carol Dweck is the, the psychologist and the thought leader who pioneered this whole concept. She comes out of Stanford University, I believe, and she teaches us about a growth and a fixed mindset. And the concept that that some kids believe that their intelligence is just like a fixed concept and it won't grow. So they just say, label themselves as, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at math. And therefore, I'll never be good at math. And so that's just my fixed mindset. I've been told I'm not good at math and therefore I'm not going to work any harder. And so Carol Dweck really is asking us to employ the word yet afterwards. So for kids to feel like I'm just not good at math yet, or I'm not good at this concept yet. And I'm learning to have more of a growth mindset so that we can, our student or our child can, can just learn that, no, it's just going to take time. And sometimes that time involves failure and, and challenges. And so by having this growth mindset, instead of being afraid of challenge, they're willing to to take on the challenge and to learn through the journey because they know it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes because they're going to learn from those. And so I actually think that when we swoop in and we try to save the day, we're basically telling our kids that they can't do it. They can't do it without our help. And so if we restrain ourselves and don't fix and don't swoop in, then they work shoulder to shoulder with them in that journey, as opposed to just catching them every time. And I don't know. I'm a believer that birth order plays a big role in kids' lives. And I think we know as parents, when you're first-time parents, usually, unless you're a very relaxed, let's say fair kind of parent, if your kid falls down, you you know quickly pick them up. Or if your kid trips, you have that worried look or whatever it is, and it continues through their life. And then you realize on your second or third child, that's okay. They fall down. They scrape themselves. You might put a Band-Aid on it. They, they might go get the Band-Aid themselves, whatever it might be. And they start to learn to fix things themselves. And so actually the quote that you just read, I really like the quote from our book that I think really supports this. And I'll just read it is basically this, that during the course of the ensuing journey, you will likely have to sacrifice or put aside your parental dreams in place of understanding your child as an individual on his or her journey. It's going to be hard. And in today's future thinking landscape, with many parents exhibiting early anxiety and forcibly paving the way for their kids' college careers, we have lost sight of the journey and instead focused too much on the destination. We implore you, fellow parents, to tweak your thinking in this way. And here's the key part. Rather than worrying about what your teen is not, instead celebrate the student that he is and accept that he will end up at college or somewhere in life that suits who he uniquely is. And that's the key. That to us in that chapter is what it's all about, is that it's going to work out for all of them in some way, especially if you're investing the time in reading a book like Parent Compass. You're a parent who cares. It will work out, but it will work out better if we can let them have this be their journey. And I say to a lot of parents, we had our turn. We had our turn. We got to do it. We got to be teenagers. We got to be middle schoolers. Yes, it was an entirely different generation. Yes, our parents' parenting styles were entirely different, but we had our turn and now it's their turn. And that's really, you know, what that chapter is about. I love that. I love that. I think it, I think it gets tricky when we see potential in our children and we're, it's a hard work issue. And we're like, well, if you just study harder, you could, do you hear that from parents? How do you deal with, how do you motivate kids to be their best when you want to encourage them to be them? 
let them be on their road, but you know that a little bit less time on social media or a little bit harder work would help them get on their road. They're not going to like every class and every teacher along the way. And not everything's going to excite them along the way. So the classes that excite our kids usually are the things that they're better at that come easier to them. Those tend to be, and then the classes that are more difficult or tend to be the classes they don't like, or sometimes a great teacher can make a course that didn't really interest your child so exhilarating and make it a brand new interest. And then sometimes a teacher that is not so great might ruin a class that your kid loves. So it's always a constant kind of navigation each year in school of, you know, which teachers are teaching what and all of that. But I think that, um, while we might know, oh, working a little harder could help, or maybe seeing your teacher could help, or we can, I think like we can sprinkle in, we can only sprinkle in certain things. Like our headmaster of our school calls us gardeners with our kids. We sort of sprinkle the seeds, plant the seeds and sprinkle things in the soil and just water it and watch them grow. And um, you can tend to the garden a little bit and prune things along the way if you can, but you really the flower or the tree is just going to grow however it's going to grow. And sometimes a little more sunlight and sometimes a little more rain or whatever it might be. And so I think that it goes back to the idea of just, we might think we know what's better for each of our kids because of our wisdom and our years of going through this. But ultimately it goes back to, this is just their journey and their turn. And we can only sprinkle in things. Look, I have a kid, every time I make a suggestion, it's rejected. It's, I don't even finish the sentence and it's a no every single time for this child's lifetime. However, a few days later, usually that child comes back to me with a proposal or something that involves one of those sprinkles, one of those suggestions. And I never say, isn't that what I suggested three days ago? Or isn't that what we talked about? I just smile and nod and say, that sounds great because I think that they hear us. I really do. I think sometimes their initial reaction is to put up that wall and to resist because they are trying to be their own person. They're trying to be independent. And sometimes what we say doesn't make any sense to them and they are not going to do it. And just by the way their brains are growing, they're just not going to do it if it's what we suggested. So therefore what we suggest does the opposite. It pushes them further away and it disconnects us. So it's knowing each kid and how they take that. And So that kid will always resist and usually a few days later come back with some version. But the next kid, I'm listen, I I need to buy the book on that one because I don't know the answer. I'm still trying to figure it out and I'm turning to other parents and turning to the parent compass and turning other people in my village to say, I'm stuck on this one. I don't know what to do. And sometimes we just don't. We just put our hands up and say, we'll just do the best we can. That was such a great answer. Thank you. Thank you. Do, I'm so sorry. I've taken so much of your time. Do I have time for one more question? Or Sure. I, okay. Sure, one, of course. Last question is, I know this ultimately culminates in college and parents being accepting of the right college for them and getting off the brand name thing that so many of us are stuck on. What advice do you have for kids, for families, for parents on letting go of kind of the connection that we have to what we did or the colleges that are on the U.S. News and World Report list? How do you best navigate that when you see your clients? Sure. Sure. U.S. News and World Report is a marketing, is a marketing scheme, yes. uh, marketing, you know, it's a marketing, and I don't know, I should call it probably a scheme or a ploy. We're not big fans of 
some magical list that, you know, ranks a select list of colleges. It's pretty unhealthy. And we, we explore the history behind U.S. News and World Report and how the rankings are skewed, how the rankings are made, and, and how parents can be and students can be lured by what they read there on some, quote, magical list. And I'm saying that with air quotes. That being said, there are 4,000 colleges in the country, and lots of them might be places we've never heard of um, or names we've never heard because they haven't appeared on some list. And so I think that a lot of people talk about fit over rankings. And I think there's a lot of places where kids can be happy. There's just one college where you fit. There's many And I think that it's being more open to a wider list, a broader list that doesn't just include this select few. Because first of all, the numbers just don't line up anyway, and things are getting wacky and lottery-like, and people are breaking the law and doing insane, just insane things to try to, I don't know, I guess, help their go somewhere that the parents feel is like a direct reflection of who they are, their trophy. I don't really know. And the kids feel the pressure, of course. And I don't know, I love I love the t-shirt that just reads college. It just says the word college. I also know that kids are choosing other routes, not just college now. And that's becoming really more acceptable. Our last chapter of the book talks about alternative routes. Kids take gap years, kids join the military, kids do internships and sometimes go to community college for a couple of years before a four-year college, go to trade school. There's just a lot of other routes now that really are not bothered by, by kids taking a more flexible journey along the way. And so I would just advise parents to let their kids take the lead on this college admission process. Let their kids, you know, have some conversations about it. But let's go visit a few campuses, even the ones in our own neighborhood. Let's go on the websites and take some virtual tours. What is it that, that your kid is really looking for? Somewhere really big at Rara, somewhere really small where professors know their names, somewhere in a big city, somewhere far from home, somewhere close to home what works within your family's budget, and really let your kids explore that and then come back to you with their ideas and and be open to listening to what their ideas might be. Their school college counselor can provide a lot of guidance. There's a lot of scatter grants through Naviance and other resources at their school that will give them a sense of where they might fall in terms of who's been admitted from their school in years past. So you can line up grades or test scores if they have them and have a sense of how realistic these schools are. And then make a list that is really realistic, a list that includes one or two fantasy schools, three or four or five, what we call mid-level schools, and then three or four or five safety schools. And be sure that the safest school on their list, they would still be happy going to. And if they wouldn't, then you need more schools on that end of of the list. And a lot of times kids go through the process and then they're just not happy with the results. And that's when they might take a gap year or reapply or defer admission or whatever it might be. This is a weird time. And I think it's a time, you know, post-COVID where the numbers are still getting even crazier because a lot of schools have eliminated the test, the testing requirement because it's been hard for kids to get in and take standardized tests. And that's just created, you know, a balloon effect, which has made the numbers even more skewed. And I don't think that's going away for the next couple of years. So I think that parents need to be incredibly realistic, incredibly supportive with their kids and have these conversations pretty early along the journey and let their kids take the lead. And if they don't, then encourage their kids to go talk to their school counselor. If they have a private counselor, a private counselor, but that's not necessary. A school counselor or an English teacher or older kids at their school are are good places to start. Um, Or friends with other families whose kids have just applied to college, those kinds of things. So that would be some of my 
suggestions in that area. (laughs) That's fantastic. Thank you. And it goes back to one of your themes, which is trust your kid. Trust that your kid's going to be okay because your kid is going to be, your kid's going to be great. If you're, like you said, (laughs) if you're working, if you're working this hard to try to be a good parent. Yeah. One of my husband's favorite quotes, which I think I'm going to print on a t-shirt. Maybe I'll have to coin it is it's all going to work itself out. Cause it does, right? (laughs) All going to work itself out. It's just going to, it's going to work out and um, we will get there in whatever way we get there. But for the most part, it usually does. Great. We just can't manhandle the whole process. (laughs) That's right. Great. So thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like for us to know? No, I would just say, I would encourage listeners and thank you so much for all your great questions. Oh my gosh. They were wonderful questions. We've, We've done a lot of podcasts and we really went into some new material here that we haven't explored in a long time or that brought up new topics. So thank you for your thoughtful questions, Ellen, and for inviting me back. And I would just encourage your listeners to pick up a copy of the Parent Compass. Uh, follow us at Parent Compass on Instagram or on our social media, which is www.parentcompassbook.com. And if any of the listeners um, start a book club, suggest the Parent Compass as a great read. It's a good way to connect with other like-minded parents and share some of your um, stumbles and some of your successes with your own village. Uh, We're really feeling like the Parent Compass is getting traction as a movement and we want people to embrace it. And if you go onto our website, we have a a guide, a free downloadable book book club guide so that people can have good, good prompting questions to elicit dialogue. And we'll even pop in on Zoom and visit your book club and answer questions or be a part of that conversation if you invite us. We're very accessible through through technology nowadays. We can travel anywhere at the push of a button. So anyway, yeah, we're really excited that the book's been so well received and that parents are still catching on. And just thank you for helping us spread the word. Oh, of course. Thank you. Oh, and I'll add one thing for you that would help you. Write a review. Because if you read the book, you will yes. love it. So please read it. Please review. Please and then write us a review. Write a review. <laughs> okay, great. And you can get it at Pages Ordered, a bunch of copies for us. So thank you so much for your time. I know I had read your book and listened to you in MBEF, and I learned a couple more things. No, and I have seven takeaways from today. I keep learning from you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I love talking to you. Thank you so much, Alan, for for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Have a great day. 